come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. This is Talk Tank, the official LSE entrepreneur podcast. My name is Sia, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to our Bits and Bytes series, where we are focusing on the individuals at the forefront of technological innovation. Mehran is the James and Eleanor Cheeseborough Professor in the School of Engineering and Associate Chair for Education in the Computer Science Department at Stanford. He is on the advisory board of various startups, and prior, he was a full-time senior research scientist at Google. He has recently published his book, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot, which has been praised by the CEO of Netflix and the president of the Ford Foundation. Sponsored by the OVH Cloud Startup Program. Thanks very much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for being here. Um, Mehran, I know that you went to Stanford and you did your, your undergrad, your postgrad and your PhD there. Um, and I think, you know, people would love to understand a little bit. What, what was the thinking behind it? Why did you do it? What, what did you get out of it? Well, the reason for going there was, you know, I just heard that it was a great school. I hadn't actually visited Stanford physically before I came as a student, but I'd heard wonderful things about it. And, uh, you know, the more that I found out about this was in the days before the World Wide Web. So the way you found out about things was you got a physical catalog. Um, it just seemed really fascinating and seemed like it had, you know, I was interested in computers before I went to college, although I didn't have any formal training or much formal training actually in, in software, or I didn't really know what computer science was as a discipline. Um, but kind of, you know, having that interest in looking through this catalog, it was really interesting. And when I went there, I just loved it, the experience as a student in terms of the educational opportunities, the opportunity to get involved in different kinds of programs. So one thing that was very influential for me when I was a student was to actually get involved with teaching. And that helped me set up, set me on a particular career path, which led to graduate school, which led to, um, you know, the connections that were made as a result there and going off and in, into industry for about 10 years. And then ultimately coming back to be a professor was really based on this, this love of teaching. And a lot of that came from opportunities at Stanford. And you pick teaching, which some, you know, it might be interesting to some people because not everybody likes teaching. Uh, some people really like the commercial world. What was it about teaching that captured you? I think there was really the opportunity to be able to work with students. Um, that's always just been interesting to me is I think the notion of being able to teach something to someone else so they have a set of skills just has kind of a magical quality to it um, because it's something that potentially is, is life-changing. Right, it can change someone's interests. It can change what they want to do as a career. It can change the kind of impact they have on the world, depending on the set of skills and, and perspectives they can bring to solve problems. And that's something that's always been interesting to me. I think in fourth grade we had to write essays about what you wanted to be when you grow up, and I wrote about wanting to be a teacher. Um, I come from a family that has a large number of educators in it. My wife for many years was a high school teacher. My brother was a college professor. Uh, both my parents were involved in different ways in the school district that I grew up in when I was, a, um, you know, in primary school and secondary school. And so teaching has always been something that's been near and dear to me. 
And then the opportunity to be able to do that as a career combined with things like research so you could have different sorts of impacts as well was just kind of too, too much fun to pass up in some respect. Yeah, some people tell me that they find particular institutions have particular types of atmospheres and it's maybe difficult to understand those. And maybe just as an example, I remember an anecdote in your book about you sitting, I think, at a cafe with a friend and somebody approached you because you were talking about um, uh, search. search yes. C can you tell that just that anecdote a little bit? Sure. Um, I think that the situation at Stanford has really evolved. I mean, just to provide a little bit of historical context, when I graduated with my bachelor's degree back in 1992, this would have been computing was not seen as, as you know, the field for the future. I had friends who, you know, had parents telling them that computing was a dead end field, that they should really consider doing something else. Um, for the first time in its history, IBM was having layoffs and it was had been this company that you go to and you sort of have a job for life in the tech sector um, and it was running into financial troubles. And so, you know, at that time in the early 90s, computing was not at all seen as sort of this world changing field. Um, you fast forward a few years to the time when I was finishing up my PhD, which was 1998, which is when the situation happens where a friend of mine and I are out at lunch and we're talking about search engines because they're related to what we're doing in our respective thesis work. And, uh, you know, a man in a suit comes over to the table and slides his business card over and says, you know, I couldn't help but overhear your conversation about search engines. Um, I'm a venture capitalist. If the two of you think about starting a company, please give me a call. And it was a very different time, right? This was 1998. The dot-com bubble, the first one, if you believe we're in a second one now, was in full swing. And there was definitely this, this different feeling in the valley. I think some people placed the hinge point at Netscape's IPO in 1995 as a way of seeing the, uh, both the large impact that the World Wide Web was going to have, but also the financial gain uh, that could go to the people who were developing this new set of technology. And so there was this rush. There were a lot of companies being formed, a lot of venture capital money being poured into financing. Mm. It was just a very different environment. Um, and so, you know, around that same time, there was a lot more interest in entrepreneurship that was developing at Stanford. There were student organizations that were being developed around it. There was more coursework uh, on entrepreneurship and startups and technology management that were uh, also being developed by various faculty and also visiting instructors at the university. So you get this big ramp up in the interest in entrepreneurship and the infrastructure to help promote it. And so it changed the nature of things. But it's interesting to think that just five, six years before, uh, the situation was very different with respect to how technology was viewed. I think a couple of years ago, Miran, you, you were concerned a little bit about the numbers of computer science graduates. But what's the most recent update on that? So the numbers, I mean, to put it in a historical context, um, in the last 10 years, we've seen a huge increase in the number of computer science majors. And this is not just at Stanford, but I think is a broader trend. I mean, certainly across the United States, it's true. It's true in many other countries as well. And, um, you know, it's interesting because if you go back further, if you go back about 15 or 20 years ago, if you go back to the first dot-com bubble after a burst, there was actually pretty significant attrition in computer science. Computer science programs in many places shrank drastically, you know, drops of 50% in the number of students studying computing. 
Um, again, it seems surprising now, given the impact the computing's had on the world, the amount of interest in it. But that's you know how the situation looked back in you know 2000, 2001, 2002. Uh, but what we've seen the last 10 years is an enormous rise in the number of computer science majors. At Stanford alone, over the last 10 years, we've seen the number of computer science majors increase by over 300 percent. Um, the school, which traditionally, if you think university-wide, about 20% of the whole university used to be in some form of engineering. Um, now about 40, 45% of the school is in engineering, and 20% of all undergrads on campus are computer science majors, um, which is astounding, right? That's one in five students. We have over 50 undergraduate majors at Stanford. So if you evenly distributed students, you'd expect them to be about 2% each per major. We're 10 times that. So it's not just a matter of being, you know, 150% or 200%, we're 1,000% more than what the even distribution would call for. So there's a huge amount of interest, and I think part of it's driven by a confluence of a few different factors. One is seeing the impact the computing can have on the world, which is pretty significant, um, especially over the last 20 years. Um, another one is, you know, for better or for worse, the financial incentives. There's a lot of stories about people who went and started companies or joined companies early on who became extremely wealthy. If you look at, you know, the top 10 wealthiest people in the world, the majority of them uh, made their riches through computing technology. Um, if you look at the five largest companies in the world by market cap now, they're all technology companies. Um, so I think there's this huge shift into computing. Um, the question is, you know, as we do that, as we automate more things, there are also downstream impacts that we need to be aware of. There's negative externalities that we need to account for and mitigate. So it's, it's not all good news. There is some good news in there, right? There's certainly efficiency gains we get from the developments in technology, but we need to be mindful that the things we generate also have negative effects. And you know, I, I do, and although I do want to talk a little bit about your current teaching work and, you know, your time at Google that you spent there, maybe just what you said is actually a great transition to, to talking a little bit about your book, because the downsides of technology is obviously a major theme uh, in your book. book. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about your book, why you wrote it, why now was a good time and what, what the main arguments are? Sure. <clears throat> um, the book is called uh, System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. Um, and it was co-written with Rob Reich and Jeremy Weinstein, who actually we also co-teach a class together. Rob is a moral philosopher and political philosopher. Jeremy is a public policy expert who actually spent several years in the Obama administration in the United States working in the White House. And I'm the technology person. And about five years ago, the three of us came together because we saw this trend on campus, more and more students moving into computing. And at the same time, we saw more of the negative impact of technology you know, on the world when we see things like misinformation and election interference or potential job displacement as a result of automation or biased algorithms. So we wanted to think about how we could, in the educational process, infuse more of the notion of ethics and trying to understand and mitigate uh, negative externalities from technology from these different lenses, because we really think it's critical to bring these different viewpoints together to really get a more holistic picture as to what the problems are, what the issues are, and how we might be able to address them. And importantly, understanding that the solution to technology problems is not always more technology. Um, that's one of the conceits 
of technologists, and I say this as a technologist myself, we like to believe that, oh, more technology will just solve the problem. Um, but when you really bring a multidisciplinary lens to looking at these issues, you realize you need a constellation of, of expertise to be able to actually make inroads on the problem. So when we came together five years ago, it was around having discussions of what can we do. We decided to do a class together that would look at some of these issues. You know, we made a long list. We honed down to what we thought some of the most significant ones were. And uh, four years ago, we started offering the class. Um, and it's, you know, started originally as, as a class called Computers, Ethics, and Social Responsibility. Uh, now it's called Ethics, Public Policy, and Technological Chain, Change. And it comes from a long tradition. There's been courses on ethics and technology at Stanford for at least 30 years. So it's not that we created something that didn't exist before. We brought a different viewpoint to it. We brought a multidisciplinary view to it. We wanted to refresh it with more modern concepts, uh, some of the issues that had come up to the, in the fore in just the last few years. And really the book looks at the fact that the problems we see in technology aren't uh, an issue of good people or bad people or good companies or bad companies. Sometimes there's a heavy emphasis put in the media on the founders of particular companies or particular personalities. And what we try to unpack, unpack is that there's really systematic drivers. There's a bunch of factors that cause a dynamic that generates some of the externalities that we've actually seen. And that dynamic is, driven by something that we refer to as the optimization mindset, which is that in engineering and certainly in computing, there's this push to want to optimize. We want to make things more efficient in terms of execution. We want to have some objective function that we measure to have some metrics, whether they be an actual metric that's put into code or metrics for business, and we want to improve those metrics over time. And when you take that notion and combine it with the notion of trying to scale very quickly, which is what many of the funders for companies want to see, right? They want to see companies get big fast. They want to have liquidity events because, you know, ultimately they're making an investment. What you get is a tendency to move very quickly and optimize on particular criteria like growth and not think about what are the externalities that are generated. And the more that you optimize with this hyper-focus on particular metrics, the more that those metrics become the only thing that matters. And the, the negative externalities that are generated more and more get ignored until they become so great that they can't be ignored. And at that point, the problems are on full display. These are the kinds of things we you know, witness now in terms of effective misinformation and disinformation in elections. And so we can, you know, I'm happy to get into more of the details of all the different areas that we that we look at in the book, but really it's ultimately it's it's a question of value trade-offs. It's the notion that you know technology is not neutral, it encodes particular values. What are the values that we encode? What are the values that essentially we're optimizing for, whether or not we think about that explicitly or not? And the fact that when you over-index on one particular value, other values are getting diminished. And unless you're cognizant of that and actually think about the balance, it's very easy for some values that we actually care about to get denigrated as a result of this optimization mindset. Now, you know, that was a great range of issues to be explored. The one thing I think makes sense to come back to first is this idea of, you know, how is it that entrepreneurs can create damage and threats to society? And in your book, you mention uh, a variety of examples. I'm thinking of the GPT-2 and 3 example. Um, I think it was Eric Loomis in the justice system. Um, can you talk us a little bit through a few of these examples? Sure. 
Um, so, you know, one of the examples maybe to think, start with Eric Loomis, the example you brought up is about the use of algorithmic decision-making in more contexts in our lives. In this context, it happened to be the criminal justice system, which was the use of algorithms to determine whether or not a defendant might be considered high risk or low risk when they're charged with a crime to then have the judge make a decision whether or not that defendant should be released on bail or not. And the idea in theory actually sounds quite appealing because, you know, in the United States, I'm not exactly sure how the system is set up in, in Britain, but in the United States, uh, there's a cash bail system in many states, which is that when you are accused of a crime, uh, depending on the severity of the crime, they set the bail amount at different amounts. And what you do is you have to post some bond, some amount of money to get out of jail while you're awaiting trial. So you can continue to live your life. And this bond that you put up, assuming you show up for trial, you get back or you get most of it back. And the problem with that is, is pretty clearly obvious is that it creates economic disparity, right? People who are wealthier can get out on bail and people who are not wealthy can't. They have to remain in jail and that has an even greater impact on their life, right? They potentially lose employment. They lose contact with their family and friends. It has all kinds of ramifications. So the idea is, well, why not replace this with algorithms? Algorithms can take a bunch of information about the defendants and come up with a risk score to determine whether or not that person is likely to what's known as recidivate, which is commit another crime in the future. Well, it sounds good in theory, but when these algorithms have actually been used in practice and people have done measurements of you know, how they impact different populations. For example, a famous study that was done by ProPublica, which is a database journalistic outfit, found that the algorithms were systematically uh, labeling um, African-American or black defendants as higher risk than white defendants. And so when they dug a little bit more deeply and they did analysis, they found out, for example, that black defendants who would not actually commit another crime in the future were twice as likely to be labeled high risk as white defendants. And when you dig more deeply, you find it's because, you know, it's a machine learning algorithm, right? It's based on historical data. Well, in that historical data, uh, African-American defendants are overrepresented. So what the uh, algorithm learns is that African-American defendants are just higher risk in general, right? And then this gets applied at an even greater scale when you roll these algorithms out across multiple jurisdictions and just reinforces the bias that existed previously. And so when someone's not aware of the fact that these algorithms can be biased across different kinds of groups of people and doesn't audit their algorithm to determine whether or not these biases exist or think about what the composition of the data was to try to mitigate the biases in some ways, we just further perpetuate those biases. And so that's the place where we really want people to think about these issues, right? When we talk to our students, when we talk about algorithmic decision-making, we talk about you know, the potential for violating the notion of fairness. And it brings up the philosophical question. This is why we need multiple lenses. What is even fair, right? When you try to take the notion of fairness and encode it in an algorithm, you need a mathematical definition of fairness. Well, it turns out there's over 20 mathematical definitions of what is quote unquote fair that all sound reasonable, but you have to choose because it turns out theoretically, not all of them are mathematically compatible with each other. Some of them you actually increase, you will by necessity decrease others. So how do you choose? How do you determine whether or not when you put an algorithm into the field, it's actually working? That's a social science question, right? You need to set up an experiment. You need to be able to gather data. You need to measure different hypotheses. And ultimately, that needs to come back to the technology question of does the technology work and can it be modified to mitigate problems that exist?
And so it's really all these multiple viewpoints that we think are essential to come together to get better outcomes, but it shows up you know, in a bunch of different uh, examples. It shows up in privacy, it shows up in misinformation, it shows up in, in automation and the effect of AI and the future on the workforce. Um, but there, if we think about you know, what the problems might actually be rather than solely focusing on the benefits, then we can balance the value trade-offs more accurately. And you know, the, the amazing, I mean, there's two things I find amazing about the Eric Loomis uh, story. And one is that you might actually come into this thinking, I'm going to do something nice for humanity by creating an algorithm, which is probably fairer than maybe some judges are. Um, when you're in psychology, they keep telling you about that study where judges are close to their lunch break and therefore their sentences are being made harsher. And so you think, hey, I'm just going to do this good thing. And then at the same time, it, it can have an opposite and a very negative effect. Um, and, and there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there probably thinking that they might be creating a, a really useful product. And it's very difficult to think about, hey, what are maybe some negative consequences of these products that we are creating? It's, it's a great point. And one of the things that I think is also a bitter pill to swallow sometimes, but is necessary, is sometimes understanding that technology is not actually the solution. And, you know, there's a great example of this, we talk about it in the book, um, is that, you know, a few years back, Amazon.com tried to, they were getting so many resumes for jobs, right? They wanted to build a system to screen resumes to determine who to give interviews to. So what they took was a bunch of historical data where they had people's resumes and of those people they knew from the past, you know, who was hired in the company. Well, now you build an algorithm, machine learning algorithm, right? That learns to correlate features from the resume with the likelihood of being hired. And as new resumes come in, you use them to score resumes for likelihood of being hired. Then the people who score highly, according to the algorithm, are the ones you give interviews to. Seems pretty straightforward. Well, what they found after doing this was that the algorithm was systematically downweighting the uh, likelihood score for female candidates. And part of the reason was the data that they had trained the algorithm on was predominantly male because the computing industry tends to be male dominated. And you know, the, in terms of features of the resume, it would like downweight the resume if it had the term women's on it, like women's lacrosse team, or would downweight if there are certain, if the name of certain all women's colleges came up, it would downweight the resume. And so, you know, Amazon, to their credit, they audited the algorithm, they understood that this effect was happening. And so they wanted to go and fix it. And this is, you know, Amazon.com, one of the most technologically sophisticated companies on the planet. They could not actually mitigate the bias in the algorithm. They tried a bunch of different things. They could not get the differential, the bias down to a level they thought was acceptable. And they ultimately pulled the algorithm and disbanded the team, right? And I actually give them credit for that because it's a technology company realizing the technology was not going to be a solution there. And part of the problem is sometimes people become enamored because all they focus on is the technology, or sometimes people feel beholden because they're funded, right? They came with this great idea to build a technological solution and they've been funded to build that technological solution. And it becomes very difficult for them to say, no, this is actually not the right thing to do because there's so many expectations placed on them at that point. So I think that's something we need to be cognizant of is to always be critical of the work we're doing, to evaluate the work we're doing, and at some point actually be willing to say, this is not the direction that we need to go. You know, in your book, another important 
part of ethics and entrepreneurship and engineering is just the education that people go through. And um, you mentioned already some of the things that you're already doing at Stanford. I think I went and, and looked at a few things as well. I think I was looking at the curriculum for CS384 um, and even started one or two of the readings. But, you know, it is very interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do there. And, and then I have a few questions for you on, on that. Um, so for our, our ethics class, um, you know, some of the things that we do is we take students through five, what we think of as, you know, important meaty topics in computing and look at the different value trade-offs and the issues there. Um, the first is algorithmic decision-making, which I already talked a bit about both, you know, criminal justice and in the hiring context at Amazon. Um, the second is data privacy. And we, for example, we look at the general data protection regulation in the EU um, and contrast that, for example, to a much more lax notion of privacy in the United States. And we think about what are the different value trade-offs here, right? One, the, the notice and choice or notice and consent framework that's used in the United States that says you basically present the notice, the end user license agreement to the user. And when they click okay, you can do whatever you want with the data as long as you put those conditions in the end user license agreement that no one reads anyway. Or the, from the standpoint of GDPR, which says the individual really should have certain rights to their data. And here's what those rights need to be. And you know, contrast those two things. And, and what does that actually mean? Some people think of GDPR as uh, basically a form of regulation that favors large companies because large companies have the resources to be able to comply with those requirements and small companies do not. So there's a value trade-off there. But at the same time, you could say, for example, there is a variation of this called the uh, California Consumer Privacy Act, which was just passed in the state of California and the United States. We still don't have a national policy, but some states are beginning to pass policies, which recognize this fact and created a carve out for startups. So it's as if you're below a certain size, these regulations don't apply to you. But when you get bigger, you know what the roadmap is for expectations around privacy. And if you never get big, it's not really a consideration because you're not really affecting that many people. Right, so we can look at these different viewpoints, say from the policy standpoint, and say, what are the reasons why there might actually be different views on privacy and how that affects regulation? Um, from there, the third topic we go into is automation and artificial intelligence. We talk a lot about job displacement and automation, how the uh, automation that's coming down the road is not going to have even impacts, right? It's, there are certain industries that are going to be much more impacted by automation than others. What does that mean? And if we can see this coming down the road, what should we be investing in now? A lot of things like reskilling and education to help people move from areas that are gonna be heavily impacted by automation into areas that are more resilient to automation in a way that's not a shock to the system, but allows for a gradual transition so that people can actually make that kind of job change. Um, we talk about other notions too that are related, like the idea of universal basic income as a way to potentially mitigate some of the effects of automation. And what does automation mean for the social safety net, for example, when you don't have payroll taxes being paid because a job that was done by a human that did pay payroll taxes is now being done by a machine. Maybe you should actually have automation taxes, which may sound like a crazy idea, but folks like Bill Gates actually advocate for them as well. 
Um, the fourth area we move into is the power of large platforms, especially social networking platforms over the information ecosystem. So we talk about who has free speech, who doesn't have free speech, what kind of controls there are, and how do you have the value trade-off between freedom of speech and say things like misinformation, disinformation, and harassment online, which are also caused by the fact that we're trying to promote freedom of speech, right? And there's a value tension that's very clear there. And the last area we go into is just the culture around computing. Um, and there is toxicity that exists in that culture, right? That's, um, you know, the very heavily based on gender, um, but also the fact that it hasn't historically been a very inclusive culture. If you look at, for example, uh, groups like African-Americans and Hispanics, they're vastly underrepresented in computing. So how do we create a more level playing field? How do we create a more even landscape, one that allows for more inclusivity? And the interesting point that ties it back to all the other topics we go through is if you look at a lot of the folks who were the early pioneers in identifying issues with algorithms, there were people in these marginalized groups, oftentimes black women. Why? Because they're the ones most impacted in a negative way by those algorithms. Right. So they were the researchers who brought these issues to bear, and it just shows the importance of why we need more representation in the field to understand how the impacts of computing impact everyone. I want to ask you about one thing, and it's a little bit of a niche thing maybe to ask, but, but it comes back to, because I want to get our audience to maybe think a little bit about the ethical problems that they might be encountering. Um, as part of their entrepreneurial journey. And, you know, one of the examples I found interesting in your book is the example of um, driverless cars and the ethical complexity around that. And you describe in your book, the ethical complexity is that, well, on the one hand, you think it's a nice thing to do because there's so many road accidents and so many people die. So, and it seems the most important factor is human. So let's just get rid of the human. But at the same time, there's going to be societal um, repercussions. There's a lot of people who drive for a living what's going to happen to those kinds of people. Then there's going to be questions around, well, what if you have to swerve into passengers or into, into pedestrians? How are you going to deal with that? How, you know, maybe if we use this as an example, how would somebody start thinking about the ethical implications and, and start resolving it? And it's a very difficult question to tackle a little bit. Sure. I mean, there's, you know, at one level, I should start by saying that, you know, I'm not a Luddite. I don't believe the solution is to try to stop the advance of technology. It's when you see where the technology is actually headed before it gets there, what do you do to deal with its impact, right? So from that standpoint, I think self-driving cars, you know, common use of them will become a reality sometime in the foreseeable future. Exactly what that time frame is, is something that's debatable. But in our lifetimes, I believe that that kind of automation will be available. So if we believe that, what are the things that we think are the consequences? There's a large number of people who are involved as drivers in the transportation industry. The transportation industry writ large in the United States, at least, which is where I'm familiar with the statistic, employs about eight to 9% of the labor force. Um, that's not to say all those people are gonna become unemployed because that's the transportation industry you know, writ large, but some non-trivial fraction of them probably are likely to be unemployed or underemployed. So that's already a sector we can identify that would need some reskilling opportunities and some new educational opportunities that are something that we could plan for now. As we get into issues around regulation of what it means for self-driving cars, I mean, one of the philosophical problems that is, is probably overused at, at this point 
Um, and so I don't like to bring it up too much, but I'll just show you an example of it as, as an example of market breakdown actually, is the famous trolley problem, which is there is a trolley coming down the track and it's gonna run over five people unless you throw a switch to divert it onto another track, in which case it'll run over one person. And that problem gets transmogrified in the self-driving car case to say an autonomous vehicle, let's say is going down the road. And at some point it comes across an unexpected situation and it can either, that requires it either to plow into a group of five people crossing the street, likely killing them, or just swerve off the road, likely killing the driver. What should it do? Well, so it turns out this, uh, you know, there's a question of what do we think about this philosophically? Could we think about it from a utilitarian perspective, a deontological perspective? There's lots of ways we can process it philosophically, and people might come to different opinions based on it. But an interesting experiment that was done a few years ago was let's see how that affects people's choices. So they actually asked people, if you were to buy a car that was an autonomous vehicle, what would you want it to do? If it were if autonomous vehicles existed, would you want them to take the option where they kill the five person versus the option where they kill the one person who's the driver of the car? And what they got was a preference from people, you know, generally in society would say, what we want these cars to do is to maximize saving human life. So we would rather have them kill the, the driver because that only kills one person rather than five. And then they said, okay, so now say you're the person buying the car. What do you want the car to do? And in that case, their preference actually switches to say, well, if I'm the driver of the car, I'm the owner of the car, I want it protecting me. That's what my higher level value is. Well, if you think about that, what does that mean for the market? It means that if manufacturers are producing cars that they want to sell, they're going to produce cars that consumers are more likely to buy, which is the car that protects the driver rather than the people on the side of the road. So what are you going to get? You're going to get a market breakdown. Precisely the kinds of policy that people would like to see in society is not the policy you're going to get when you're trying to maximize for selling the vehicles based on individual consumer choices. That's exactly that kind of market breakdown is exactly the kind of place that you want a government to step in and say, no, we're actually going to have a policy that says when these cars are produced, we want them to try to maximize human life, whoever th that life might be, whether it's the driver or the passengers, we want it to maximize human life. Right. And so these are the situations where you get differential behavior between what the market will push for, which is mean what is what entrepreneurs are likely to go after versus what are societal preferences. That's exactly the place where government should be playing a role. Do you think, by the way, it's such an interesting uh, tidbit of data. Everyone wants others to drive cars that protect everybody, but nobody wants to be in that car themselves. They all want to be in the car that saves you when you're yeah. the you know, From the standpoint of self-preservation, right, it kind of makes sense. Yeah. But taken to the limit, it shows you exactly where we're, you know, things are going to, the market will, will not get us the outcomes that we actually want. We, we didn't do that. I mean, Meran, I, I didn't actually ask you about your, your Google experience. There, there's so many topics I actually would love to go into. I know we're we are coming to a close, but what I just did want to say is I do think the ethical conversation is an important one. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that we did have that conversation. And for people who are starting out in their journey, it's not necessarily obvious or easy to think about those things because everyone's just focused on succeeding and ethics seems to be an afterthought. Um, so it is great to, to have that conversation um, with somebody. Um, is there any other final pieces of advice that, that, that you would like to impart to us? Well, I think the important thing is to, 
you know, for, for entrepreneurs is to understand that ethics is not a nice to have. It's something that when you create your organization, you build a DNA into that organization. You make choices about who you hire. You make choices about the actions that you take, setting an example for everyone else. And so if you think ethics are optional when you begin, that means you will create a workforce and a company that views ethics as being optional. And that's probably a place where one, not a lot of people would want to work, but secondly, will certainly have detrimental impact in the future, probably both to society and to your bottom line. So it's something to take seriously from the outset and build it into your culture because then it will pay dividends to you much later. Such a great point. Um, Mehran, thank you very much for being here. We, we loved having you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was a fun conversation, wonderful questions. I just really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and see you next week.